Our scripture passage this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your servants in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Okay. Well, we have been studying the book of Ephesians now for a couple of months. And if you remember, uh, the theme of this book is unity in Christ. Early in chapter one, Paul tells us that God has finally revealed his great mystery. The mystery that was hidden for all the ages. And now he's shown us that, that he is planning to bring unity to all things, all things in heaven, all things in earth. He is bringing them into unity under Christ. And for the last few weeks, we've now been asking, well, practically speaking, what does that mean for us? How do we live that out? And Paul's been looking at all these different pieces of the family structure and talking to each one of them to say how they're supposed to live. So how do we live out unity in Christ as a wife? How do you live out unity in Christ as a husband or as a parent or as a child? But today we are coming to a little bit more complicated of a category, maybe a little bit more challenging of a category because today Paul is addressing slaves and their masters. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you might've heard this passage preached on before. I hope you have. Uh, as you've gone through the book of Ephesians. But a lot of times, pastors will take this and they will turn it into just instructions for how employees and bosses are supposed to interact. And while I don't think that's a wrong thing to do necessarily, I think there are some good principles that you could gain from this text regarding that relationship. Um, what I think would be more useful for us today is if what, what would help us to get the most out of the scripture is if we try to figure out the context that Paul was actually writing to. If we try to understand the circumstance that Paul had in mind when he gave these commands. And from that, I hope as we study it, as we figure out the reality of what Roman slavery was like, maybe we can better understand how these commands might apply to us today. And I'm also hoping that in the process, when we get a deeper understanding of what slavery meant back then, it might help us to gain a deeper understanding of the gospel itself. And it might propel us to go out and live lives that actually transform the world around us. So that's the goal for the day. It's a big one, but I want us to talk this morning about three things. The history of slavery, the theology of slavery, and then thirdly, the reversal of slavery. That's where we're going, so let's just get right into it. The history of slavery. 
We can't read the words slavery in the Bible without acknowledging that in our country, we have a really painful history around this topic, right? It's always going to influence us when we pick it up, the history that America particularly has with slavery. Because we all know, we recognize that the race-based slavery system that existed here was evil. It was horrific. It was wrong. And in some ways, it was traumatic for all of us, no matter what side you're on. We've all been traumatized by that history. And because we're traumatized by that history, I've seen pastors take different approaches to the concept of slavery when it shows up in the Bible. One thing that's pretty common is that a pastor will try to really differentiate between the different kinds of slavery, right? That the kind of slavery we had in America was much, 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 much worse than the kind of slavery they had way back in ancient Rome. And I understand that instinct. I think it's well-intentioned when pastors try to do that because they don't want this to be a huge distraction to us as we're trying to understand the word of God. But I'm not sure that difference really stands up to the facts of history. I mean, was slavery in the ancient Roman world really that much better than slavery as it was in the colonies and in America? I mean, maybe. And maybe in some ways it was a little better, but it's kind of like asking, would you rather be run over by a bus or an 18-wheeler, right? They're both awful. Slavery, slavery is slavery. And so rather than taking up the time to split hairs over all the different uh, characteristics between America and back then, I think we should maybe just ask a simple question, which is for us to consider the question, should anyone be able to own you? Should anyone be able to own your spouse or your children? Should anyone have the power to use your life up like you're a tool until you're worn out? Should anyone be able to use up your body without any pay or any reward? Should anyone have the power to take your life for whatever reason they see fit? No, of course not. But that is the reality of being an enslaved person. That's what it meant. Uh, Biblical scholar Scott McKnight, he says this, slavery was one of the really great evils of the ancient world under which a large portion of the population belonged totally to another person for better, or usually for worse. With no rights, no prospects, the possibility of sexual abuse, the chance of torture or death for trivial offenses. Some slaves were fortunate in having kind or generous masters, but for the great majority, life was at best drudgery and at worst merciless exploitation. Slavery in the ancient world was just, it's every bit as brutal as you might imagine it would be. But it's important for us to recognize as we read this that it was also a fundamental part of the ancient Roman society. About 35% of the population was enslaved. 
About 250,000 people every year were sold into slavery in the ancient Roman world. Now, I should mention, it was one key difference between uh, the slavery we had here and back there. There was a possibility of manumission in the Roman world. That means there was a chance that you could potentially become free, but historians have pretty much agreed that most slaves were never freed. And as long as we're thinking about the, the way that world was different than ours, we might as well also mention that uh, the idea of freedom was very different back then as well. The way we think of freedom today is quite different from the ancient idea of freedom because, like we've been talking about, the ancient world, it was structured differently. The ancient world was really structured around the family, around the patriarchy. Um, here's another quote. It says, freedom, at least freedom as we've come to understand it, which means uh, self-determination, individual autonomy, the ability to do whatever you want to do. Uh, it was the condition of very few people in the Roman Empire. Only those people at the top of power, so emperors, senators, major landowners, only those kinds of people experience what we would call freedom. And the rest of people were shaped by their location in the household. Everybody else, their lives were shaped by where they fell into this power structure. So that means even if you were a slave who was set free, your life was still going to be pretty miserable. You were going to be very limited by a lack of citizenship, maybe a lack of education, but certainly a lack of any kind of standing in society. Now, I still think most slaves would probably take that because nobody wants to be owned by someone else. But it's important to know this whole Roman world, it depended upon status. It depended upon your location, not just in society, but your role inside the family. And so one author says the way slavery is designed, it takes all that stuff away from you. And that meant the life of a slave was really a kind of living death. That's the way he put it. The thinking of the day was mostly shaped by great philosophers like Aristotle. And Aristotle, he taught that slaves weren't even really fully human. He, he used the term, he said that slaves were tools with souls. And that's what most people thought. Okay, so I think I've, I've made that point clearly enough that even in the ancient world, slavery was no good. Slavery was a, a terrible evil even back then. And so that brings us to the natural question. Why then does Paul give these instructions? I'm going to read them for you again. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as you, if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or whether they are free. Now, if you hear me reading that, and the only thing that's going through your mind is, wow, Paul's really trying to keep these slaves down. He's really trying to make them subservient, then... Maybe you're not listening to 
what I'm trying to describe. Or maybe I'm not describing that ancient society very clearly because what should surprise us here is that Paul is addressing the slaves at all. It's, it's a pretty incredible thing that in this letter that was meant to be read to the church, Paul took the time to address these slaves. What Paul's doing is actually pretty radical. He is talking to the slaves in the room as if they are people and not tools. He's treating them with the same amount of respect and the same amount of dignity that he did every other person in this church in the instructions that came before it. Do you understand? When he is telling them these instructions, he's giving, acknowledging the value of their lives. He's acknowledging their value within the congregation of the church. And not only that, he's showing them that Jesus loves them. That Jesus cares about the struggles that even they are facing. But still, you might ask, well, why doesn't Paul just abolish slavery? Why didn't he give that command? Why doesn't he say, master, slavery is bad. Stop it. Well, I think it's pretty simple because when you think about something as major as destroying the institution of slavery in the Roman world, the simple fact is Paul wasn't thinking in those terms. He couldn't think in those terms because that's not what it meant to be a Christian at the time. The, the church at that point in history was, it was a scrappy movement. It was a bunch of outcasts. It was former prostitutes and tax collectors meeting in somebody's house because they'd been kicked out of the synagogues. It was a group led by fishermen. So the notion that this little household church was going to somehow break down the entire structure of society it just was, it couldn't have been any further from his mind at that moment. But I really like the way John Stott put it, the old British preacher. He said that in these verses, Paul lit the fuse that would eventually burn down and explode the bomb that would break the institution of slavery. And what, what exactly does that mean? What was the fuse that he lit? Well, I don't think it was those instructions I just read. I, I really think it's more verse 9, where he says, Masters, after giving these instructions to the slaves, he then says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he is both, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. So Paul, he doesn't just speak to the slaves, but then he turns to the masters and he says, whatever you may believe, you're all the same in God's eyes. Later, in another one of his letters, Paul wrote in the letter of Philemon, he sent a slave, on, a slave back to his owner. And in that book, he tells them that he has to receive that slave no longer as a slave, but better than a slave. Receive him, he says, as a brother. Now it's true, Paul did not envision 
a world where someday the Christian church would have the power and the stature that it needed to destroy slavery altogether. But here's the crazy thing. Someday it would. Eventually it did. Eventually the church did have that kind of power. And to me, I'm, I'm really encouraged because I, I remember now every year at Christmas we sing hymns like, Oh Holy Night. And you know, there's a line in there that says, Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. That eventually became the song of the church. So that's briefly some of the history. That's what slavery was like back then. But now let's talk a little bit about what we can take from this passage. So what do we do with these instructions? I told you a little bit about what it means to be a slave, what slavery was like. I hope now you can understand why I don't think that this is the best text to talk about interactions in the workplace. Like I said, there, there are some good principles in there you can use. I'd encourage you, you can study it for that purpose, but, but that's not what Paul was doing here. This wasn't about the workplace. Paul was trying to uplift and to dignify a people whose lives on earth were nearly hopeless. He wanted to show a powerless people that their God could still see them that their God had not abandoned them. And I, I think the more we can get that idea of slavery in our head, what that world would have been like, what that life would have been like, the hopelessness, the pain, all that stuff, it actually helps us as we try to understand some of the ways Scripture talks about the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, I want to I look at some of the words of Jesus right now and show you exactly what I mean. John chapter 8. I think I've got that on a slide here. John chapter 8, verse 34. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free Indeed. Slavery is the image that Jesus says best describes a life lived apart from God. That means that if you're here this morning or if you're watching us this morning and you are not a believer, you may not realize that. You might think that you're going about your life freely. You might think that you are pursuing whatever you wish. Pursuing your dreams. If you're like most people in this area, you're looking for fulfillment. You're trying to complete your life. Find what makes you happy. In Lake Norman, I don't know, that looks different for different people, but a lot of times it's having a steady job or a nice bank account in your retirement, having a family, nice house, maybe a boat. And each time you achieve one of these goals, or as you imagine what it would be like to have them, you, you have this hope inside of you that the next thing you get, when you finally achieve that moment, well, that's going to be the thing. 
That'll finally be enough. But it never is. And maybe you're not looking just for possessions. Maybe you're looking for a relationship. Maybe you're looking for a reputation or some kind of success. Or maybe you're just hoping to have that breakthrough at counseling next week so that you're finally going to have that inner peace that you've been looking for. Do you ever wonder why you're always seeking and never finding? Well, Jesus says the reason you feel trapped and empty and unfulfilled is because you are enslaved and you don't even know it. You are enslaved to your passions. You are enslaved to your desires. You're not moving around the world freely, but you are being dragged around by a master that wants to use you up. And it's working. Just like a slave, you have been prevented from living a full life, from living the abundant life that you were meant to live as a child of God. That's what Jesus says, you are slaves. But that's not the only place that understanding slavery helps our theology. Because it also teaches us about the richness, the depth of Jesus' love. There's another passage in Philippians, a well-known one, where God tells us Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave it's the exact same word in our passage this morning, doulos. And being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The gospel tells us that because we were enslaved, Jesus had to become a slave in our place. Try to think about that. What in the world? How is that possible? How could the most powerful and independent and free being in the entire universe become nothing, become powerless? Why would he ever do that? Well, he told us himself. We just read it. He said, if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. The slave has no permanent place in the family, but he came so that we could be sons, so that we could be set free. Now, think again about what I just told you, about where the slave sat in the household, how the slave had no status, no position in society. Remember how I told you that even when emancipated, the slave's life was going to be a life of misery and drudgery but it says here that Jesus took our place as slaves and gave us the place 
of sonship. He's talking about that kind of freedom that I told you nobody had back then. (laughs) That kind of freedom that only the most powerful people got to experience in those ancient days. The gospel tells us we are no longer shackled to our passions and, and our desires, but instead we now get to come boldly to the place of perfect joy. The perfect freedom that is only found in our heavenly father's home. So do you see, do you understand how when we, when we get this idea of what it meant to be a slave, how it deepens our theology? But that's not all. That's not all it does. It actually, I hope, will impact our actions as well. And that brings us to what I'm calling this morning the reversal of slavery. In our passage this morning, Paul says that every person in the church needs to consider themselves slaves of Christ. Did you see that in verse 6? Paul also, he doesn't just say that to the slaves, but he says it to the masters. He says, you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Whether you're a freed person, he says, or whether you're enslaved, regardless of who you think owns who, here's the reality. You all equally belong to God. Maybe you're thinking, dang, I just, I thought you just said we were free. But now you're, you're saying we're actually slaves? We're slaves of Christ? Well, yeah. But here's the deal. There are no free agents. That's just not the way the world works, and you know it. We are creatures. We are created beings. We were made to worship. That's the only way we are able to live. We were, we were made to worship God and we will forever suffer under the tyranny of a thousand different masters of our own choosing until we surrender to Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus is the only master who can say his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And let's be honest, folks, being a a slave of Christ, it means being a captive to joy itself. It means being a captive to love. Our slavery is a slavery to freedom. And our master, he doesn't burden us with these endless, empty pursuits that will never satisfy us. But no, he commissions us to go out And to keep doing that same work, to proclaim freedom to all the other captives. That's our job. We got to go tell the rest of the people in this community that they too can be set free. Our Lord gives us a mission. Our master gives us a task. And let me be clear, that is a spiritual mission in one regard. Right? Our, our task as followers of Christ is to go and make disciples. We're supposed to preach the gospel. We're supposed to proclaim the good news to everybody. But there's also some practical earthly implications to this as well. When Jesus tells us to pray, 
he tells us to pray that his kingdom would come on earth, right? That his kingdom would come on earth just like it is in heaven. That we are taught to expect that we're going to make a difference here, right? We're taught to expect that as God's people, we're going to make a difference here on earth. You know why we don't have the institution of slavery in this country anymore? It's because of Christians. It's because of Christians, right? It's because of Christians who, like Harriet Tubman, who, though she was set free herself, could not bear to watch her brothers and sisters endure in slavery and so risked her life in the Underground Railroad to save at least 70 other people because of the conviction of her faith. We don't have slavery because of Christians like William Wilberforce, who fought his entire life for the abolition of slavery in England. This man was a maniac. He would not rest while his fellow Christians continued to proclaim their faith, their spiritual faith, while every day they were carrying out oppression in their daily lives. Now, in England, slavery was abolished in 1833. Officially, that's when it came to an end. But the truth is, in this very building, decades later, people continued to listen to the proclamation of freedom in Christ while the souls they claimed to own sat right up here in the balcony. That's painful for me to say, actually, because you might not know this, but I have roots that go pretty far back in this area. I know you know I just recently came from Boston, but we're like four generations deep, at least, in this area. That means that when I think about those people back then, those, those aren't just some evil, awful people that used to be in this building, but those are my people. Those are, are good people, right? People who loved the Lord, and yet... They were so blind to their sin. And I bring that up because I want to ask this question. Is that only a problem of the past? Has injustice and oppression suddenly stopped in our world? Have we finally reached a utopia for all people? No, right? Of course not. Well, that means we've got to ask another question. Is our freedom in Christ leading us to seek freedom of the people around us? Or have we become those people that are so heavenly minded that we are no longer any earthly good? Are we truly, like this passage tells us to be, slaves of Christ and his commands or have we unknowingly become slaves of just the pull of the status quo? Or maybe I'll just I'll ask it a little more simply. Where might future generations of Christians look back at us and say, how could they not see? How could they be so blind? 
My prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit would move in a powerful way, not just in our theology, but in every bit of our daily lives so that we might live constantly for his glory and that we would be like Paul is right here, that we'd be the kind of people who who go to those, the ones that society overlooks and we address them with dignity, with worth, that we see them as brothers and sisters. My prayer is that we would live radical lives as the freed slaves of Christ. And that as we do that, there would be no corner of Mooresville that is untouched by the power of God. This morning,